Father, as we sit and stand before you, we desire to be led and guided by your spirit. And as we realize going through the scriptures last week, we don't always see when you're right there in the middle moving, where you're moving us, but we can see the aftermath. We would ask God that you would teach us guide us, move us in the direction that your spirit wishes us and this church to go. Build us up in the most holy faith. Help us to emulate being examples like those were in the Old and New Testaments, how they exercised their faith in you and trusted in spite of the circumstances. Teach us these lessons in your word to meet that end. In Jesus' name, amen. We're just going to pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 34 of the book of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. Now just by way of review, as a result of the sin of the Israelites, they suffered loss. A heavy burden was placed upon Moses. The entire community suffered. Both the leader of the people and the people were in turmoil for a particular amount of time. Moses now had to go back to do what God had already provided for. He was going to reissue the Ten Commandments on a couple of tablets that Moses had to go and hewn out. He had to retrace his steps, and he had to climb this mountain with these two tablets, probably to its peak. And this particular peak is over 7,000, almost 7,500 feet. For anybody that is not carrying a load, this could take approximately three hours. I don't know of any of you, and I don't know what the elevation is at the bottom of this peak where he would start, but rising up probably... 5,000 or 6,000 feet to reach the top because he is already above sea level. We don't know how hard it was. I'm sure it was arduous to some degree because he's carrying these two stone tablets, but they had to take like a timeout. There was judgment that came, and then they had to do a reset. The people fell into idolatry. 3,000 of their number died at the sword of those who are the Levites because Moses said whoever is for the Lord come up with me and whoever is not can remain and then he instructed the Levites to go through the camp and kill their own family members who are involved in this idolatry 3,000 of them died and this is not to mention those who were killed in the subsequent plague that came as a judgment from God which means the course of the Israelites it veered off from the direction God wanted it to go. It was supposed to go in this direction, and it veered off. And they had to like do a redo and a reset to go in the same direction that they were heading. Repentance was necessary because the relationship was God with God was interrupted. If not for the intercession of Moses, God would have stopped being with the people in the wilderness. But because Moses interceded, God relented, and he said, I will go with you. I will guide you. And Moses, like I said, 
had to travel back up to the mountaintop to get God's blessing again, his direction, his guidance. Now, there was just a few people as opposed to the one to three million that were actually on the trek. How many got involved in the worship of the golden calf? Well, we don't know, but certainly 3,000 did. Was it 100,000? Was it 200,000? Probably not. It, It was almost the case that there was this small band of people, almost anarchist, that said, this is what we're going to do. We are going to worship in a way we want to. And probably the rest of the camp said, Moses is not going to be happy when he gets back. He sees this thing taking place. It's not going to go good. And they're probably starting to fret like, what is, you know, what's God going to do? We've seen all of his mighty works and his judgment of those people who were idolaters back in Egypt. And what's going to happen? I'm sure they were fretting, fretting inside of the camp. But there were these, this small group of people by the numbers, you go by the numbers, it was less than 1% that's out there, and they're just saying, no, this is what we're going to do. We're going to worship this calf. And it changed the course of the Israelites because of that small group. Now, by relation in here, it would only take one person, maybe two, that could change the course of this church by getting involved in idolatry or sin. And you might think, that's really not the case. You know, a single person can commit a sin and it's really not going to affect the entire church. You know, there is a story in the book of Joshua and there is this man in the book of Joshua called Achan. Achan was one man. And this is after Moses had died and they had gone into the promised land. Joshua had died and they had already crossed the Jordan River, and they were going into the land to subdue it. And it says in Joshua chapter 7, verse 2, Now Joshua sent a man from Jericho to Ai. And so the men went up to spy out Ai in verse 2 of chapter 7, just to see about taking the city, because God told them to go in and conquer the land of Canaan. It says, when they came back, they described the conditions and recommended that only two or 3,000 men go up instead of six or 7,000. And so they sent the two or 3,000 men. They went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai who killed about 36 of them. Now, 36 out of two or 3,000 men, it's not a lot, but the Israelites were not accustomed to that. The Israelites were accustomed to God going in first and removing them or giving them the power to kill them and the fear of God would fall upon them and they would just be wiped out is the way it worked. And this time it did not happen. So the people, they came back, the men came back and they were distressed. They go, why couldn't we beat these people? What was the deal? How how come all of a sudden we're losing this battle? We must have done something. And of course, at that particular point, Joshua said, okay, we're going to go ahead and pray about this, but then we're going to go through all the tribes, all the clans, all the families, and we're going to pass through or have each one pass in front of Joshua. And it's going to come down to whoever in the camp of one to three million people had done something that was against what God desired. Well, Joshua said in verse 25 of Joshua chapter 7, 
Why have you brought this trouble on us? And he's referring to Achan. The Lord will bring trouble on you today. And Achan had to show up not only himself, but they brought his family, his wife, kids, his animals, and everything. And what he had done in a particular battle, he had grabbed some uh, precious metals for himself and a robe, and he put it in his tent, and it was supposed to be a dedicated thing to the Lord. Nothing was to be taken by the people, but he did. He took it. And he hid it in his tent, buried it in his tent. And Joshua, when Joshua saw Achan, he says, tell me, brother, what is this thing you have done? And he confessed. Once he confessed, they stoned him and his whole family. And they buried him right there. And they were done with it. And then the God, God gave him blessing because one man was disobedient. They lost 36 men out of two to 3,000. Now, if we think, if we are deceived into thinking that one person's sin will not affect the rest of us, we are mistaken. My sin will affect you. Your sin will affect me. None of us are an island. This idea, this uh, psychology of the day, the, the reigning theology, secular theology, if you will, the God of this age says, as long as you're not hurting anybody, it'll be fine. That is not true because it does a disservice to the mentality, to the psyche of the individual if they get involved in the sin and then they can become militant in that sin, defending it. Like, I'm not doing anything wrong. I have the freedom to do this. And you know, when you read scripture, it points out things like this and all of a sudden it, it causes you to start personally reflecting like, is there anything that I am doing that I shouldn't be doing that could affect the entire church? You know, I have to ask myself that too. Is there anything? And believe me, at times I'm going, you know, that's probably not good. Even though I may have the free, it's probably not good. And likewise with you. You're probably going, well, now that I sit here and think about it, it's probably not good that I'm doing this particular thing or that particular thing. And you can fill in the blank. You know what they are or you know what it is. And so God encourages us, look, as an individual Christian, one who is part of a body that brings about unity, be of one mind, Scripture says. That's like the Apostles' Doctrine. The reason we are a Calvary Chapel and we're not a Baptist or we're not a Pentecostal, we call ourselves Baptocostal. We're kind of like in the middle uh, of those two. We're not radical over the top with the gifts and yet we're orthodox in our Christianity. And, and so we mold those two together. And what about reformed versus Armenian? No, we're neither. We're in neither camp. And so we're kind of in the middle. We look for what unites us. We don't look for what divides us. And so we need to be of one mind in that. If we are of one mind, we can go forward. If we're not of one mind, if you have two people in the church that are personality saying, no, this is the way it needs to go. No, this is the way it needs to go. It needs to be a brown roof. No, it needs to be a red roof. You might think that that's maybe a little sarcastic, but believe it or not, in Gene Edwards' book, How to Prevent a Church Split, there were arguments over the type of roof that should be on a church. I mean, they, they had a church split over it. That's why this book is about church splits. You know, there was actually a, a one story he told in there that members of the church were putting out a hit on one of the deacons inside the church. I kid you not, it is in the book. They were so dissatisfied with this one particular deacon, they wanted to take him out. 
And, you know, there's so many things that we can disagree about. And things like the color of the roof, the color of the walls, the color of the chairs, whatever it is. I mean, there are big things to disagree about, but these things are not one of them. And so we need to be unified. We need to be fully convinced. This particular group, the Israelites, were not unified. How many were out of step? One. One man was out of step. Now, that's the downside. When we look at this, we can be convicted and we go, you know, Lord, give me strength or help me to exercise the strength that you give me to walk the straight and narrow. Help me not to fall into a pattern of sin. But God's grace, even if you do, can cover that. God is a God of mercy and he is a God of grace and he is a God of forgiveness and he will forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin as we will get into. And so we have to remember that. The sin of Achan affected the entire group after they had crossed the Jordan River. And it was because of the one man, Joshua, that good resulted. He was able to lead the people. It was because of one man, Achan, that judgment came in. And so we can choose to be a person of righteousness and that which is good, or we can choose to be a person of that which is unrighteous and that which is bad or is wicked. If we find a middle ground, what if we went to the Lord and said, Lord, you know, there's just this really right-hand side of Christianity where they are like super disciples, you know, they read their Bible, they go to church, they pray, and they give, you know, they... It's like they love you or something. And then there's this other side that just goes to church and they say hi. And then they go to a rip-roar and Super Bowl party and get smashed, right? And you go, these two are inconsistent. Let's find a place in the middle, right? Because we want balance. Have you ever heard that? There's a church in the book of Revelation that tried to find a balance. Do you know the name of the church? Laodicea. Laodicea was the church of the lukewarm. They were the church. And by the way, Laodicea, it, it had these hot springs that were a little bit of a distance off. And they would bubble up and then they would flow towards Laodicea. And by the time it got to Laodicea, it was tepid. It was kind of warm. It wasn't really refreshing. And so when you went to drink it, you would go, oh, and you'd spew it out of your mouth. That's exactly what Jesus says about the people in Laodicea. That because you are not hot or cold, because you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. Now I read that and I go, so what am I? Am I lukewarm? Am I hot for the Lord? Am I trying to find a middle ground? The Lord encourages us, do not look for that middle ground when it comes to being devoted to him when it comes to living our lives, when it comes to things in the body of Christ that are issues as far as doctrine is concerned, whether or not to do them, whether or not to be involved, there are scriptures that guide that, and we don't have to argue over the non-essentials. The non-essentials are the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the virgin birth, his uh, death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and his ultimate return. Those are essentials. If we disagree on those, well, you might as well go to church somewhere else. But these other things that are not, like, for instance, dancing. 
you know, it, it's written in the book of first special spec. I'll get it. First speculations. <laughs> it says thou shalt not dance, right? Or, uh, it also lists in chapter two of that same book. Cleanliness is next to godliness. In chapter three, it says God helps those who help themselves. I mean, these things just aren't listed in scripture. But we make them pillars that we must abide by because that is what holy living is about. We might as well just be like the Jews who took the law, came up with the oral tradition. They transferred it to the Mishnah and said, you must follow this and you can't look at yourself in a mirror on a Sabbath because therefore you might try to fix something and that would constitute work. And you'd be sinning at that point. You'd have to be a sacrifice to the temple and it's just a mess. So don't look in the mirror, right? We want to do that as Christians too. We want to put up these hedges and say, you can't be involved in this because it's just not holy according to who according to church or according to me because that's what we've always done and we have to be careful about that but in this particular case as we digress it is Achan who did something all by himself that caused the camp of the Israelites to veer off and have to take another route apart from where God had intended and it was Joshua who brought them back to where they could actually head in the direction they were supposed to. And Moses, those two guys, individuals were used by God. Now, I mentioned previously when I started, there's this man by the name of William Wilberforce, right? I want to give you a little bit of his background. He was responsible for the eradication of slavery in England. Wilberforce had political ambitions, and with his connections, he managed to win an election to Parliament in 1780. That was an 18th century he got saved in 1786 and from that point his life just dramatically changed now he was kind of like now I I don't want to compare him too closely to the apostle Paul the apostle Paul had an infirmity that he prayed to the Lord three times that the Lord would take it away and his response to Paul the Lord's response to Paul was my grace is sufficient for you my Uh, Power is made perfect in weakness. So the weaker Paul was, the more Paul could be used. Otherwise, he might get puffed up. Well, in this particular case, William Wilberforce, he was a sickly man. He was sick all of his life. He was constantly battling ailments of different types. He got uh, hooked. It wasn't morphine. I forget the... uh, drug at that time he got hooked on it but he and it just caused him all kinds of anxiety it was giving him relief from his sickness but the lord used him anyhow and with a friend of his thomas clarkson he managed to have 12 resolutions put into parliament against the slave trade as it was introduced and that was in 1789 now it was at such a bad point such a low that people in England thought it will never turn around. There were so many people who were involved in the slave trade that it would never be any other way. And it's this one man who changed it. As I said before, he wrote that book, Practical View of Prevailing Religious Systems of Professed Christians, and it was a scathing critique of the comfortable Christianity that became a bestseller. And people read it, and they said, you know, we really need to shape up our act here. We are witnesses for Christ. And this man was devoted to Christ. Now, he was a sinner just like the rest of us. But God chose to use him just like he chose to use Joshua, just like he chose to use Moses. And three days before he died, it was mentioned to him that the Emancipation Bill was entered into Parliament. 
three days before he died, he literally found out that he had been successful on his deathbed. And the reason for his existence became clear at that time to stop slavery over in England. And he was able to do that. One man, and he has some assistance from his friend there, Thomas Clarkson, but one man made a difference. And he made a positive difference. Now, do you think he had opposition from the slave traders? Anybody who seeks to do that which is right will receive opposition. And they will receive opposition from the world. Now, how do you tell if it's the world that's giving you opposition? Well, see what they stand for. If they come out and they say, well, we're against this. Well, why are you against it? Have a conversation with them. They say, because it's the right thing to do. Really? And who determines what is right? Well, we do. Really? You're the final authority, so might makes right, right? Well, in this case, yeah, it does. Well, you know, they're wrong if they say that because morality comes from God. It is transcendent, it is beyond us. Right and wrong, we do not make up. If we decided what was right and wrong in this group, do you think we'd agree? Absolutely not. You, you cannot do that. That's a sin. Pastor Bill talked about dancing and we cannot dance. You know that. Okay, you can't dance. You know, if that's what the Lord has told you not to do, then if you break that, if you violate your conscience in that, then... It's wrong for you to do, but we will never agree on right and wrong if it's left up to us. That's why when it comes to a very important subject, no matter what it might be, some act of Congress or some act in a community or some sheriff does something or whatever, the the person in authority, if they implement some type of law, you have to determine, is that right or is that wrong that they do that? For instance, are taxes wrong? No, taxes are not wrong. Taxes have been around. There's two things that are certain, right? Taxes and death. They're not wrong. But when does it become immoral when you raise taxes too high? At what point, and there's a threshold, and for each one of us, it's different. Some people would say 1%. Others would say, well, I think we should give like most of it, like 70%. You know, William Wilberforce was involved in that. He gave a great deal of his income to those who didn't have anything over his life, and he did it voluntarily. He wanted to make sure that people had things. And he, he set up several groups to assist those who are poor, those who are indigent. And he was just a wonderful man. I'm probably going to go back and read his book and probably a biography of him. Because it just these men and women of history, they have set such an example for us to follow. And if we're not familiar with that, we will never fully mature. That's why we have the biographies in Scripture of these godly men and women and what they did. So we can learn from their example. And God wants us to go ahead and pursue that type of lifestyle where we are completely sold out for him. So, in summary, a few of the Israelites fell into sin. A course of the entire nation went askew for a time. Moses was one man who affected the outcome for good. And God uses the individual to do his bidding here on earth. God doesn't take a whole group necessarily. He takes a person. And he uses that person for his own ends. And that person is able to influence others and say, this is what we need to do. Now, at this point, you ask the question, Am I such a person that God wants to use to affect the lives of others? What do you think the answer is? The answer is absolutely. 
Absolutely. He, he wants to use you. He wants you to be involved in his army, so to speak. Now, it, we've heard the songs like Onward Christian Soldier, you know, and we are soldiers in the Lord's army, but we do not have weapons that are carnal. We have weapons that are spiritual to the pulling down of strongholds because we do not war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in the heavenly realms. We have a spiritual battle going on. After you walk out of this place, do you think you're going to have a little demon hanging around going, I'm just going to make your day miserable? You know, something like, that my team lost, I'm so, you know, whatever it is. You're going to be miserable. Maybe not today, but tomorrow, maybe the next week. Maybe you're going to have a fender bender. Maybe you're going to get a letter from the IRS. Something is just going to discourage you, and you're going to go, it's just not fair. Life is so hard sometimes. Yeah, it is. And God's going to deliver us from all that. In the meantime, you go, <laughs> Satan has won the war. You know, he's hitting this battle, but that's it. And the Lord has something prepared for us, and it's all good. This is just being used to mold and shape me. That's it. And if you recognize that, you can turn to the enemy and go, Ha-ha, you have no sovereignty over my life. You know, and you, you don't have to say it like that, but you can, you can just simply turn to the enemy and say, Hey, the Lord deal with you. The Lord rebuke you. Whatever trial comes along, I know it's for my benefit. And you know, even Achan and the sin that the people were involved in, God allowed these things to take place for the benefit of the people to teach them, to guide them. And it was hard, you know, for little children growing up, Learning to do what is right. Is it hard for them? Do they shed tears? Yes, they do. They cry and they whine and when they can't have something, but it's all for their good, right? And the Lord treats us the same way. So thousands can be affected by one who is subjected to God. That's the lesson that we had learned from Moses and from Joshua. Exodus 34, verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. Now, when it says the Lord, if you were to open up your Bible or you were to open up your little program on your phone, if you have an electronic Bible, you will see the word Lord there is all capitals, L-O-R-D. The reason it is all capitals like that is this refers to what is known as the Tetragrammaton. This is God's name that is used more than any other name for God in the scriptures 6,519 times. Sometimes the word Adonai is substituted for it, but it is missing the vowel points in the Hebrew. And the reason it is because the Israelites, the Jews, considered that name so holy they didn't want anybody speaking it. And so people have gone back, and it's actually been lost, the original pronunciation of it. But if you go back and you try to install some vowels in it, if you were to look at it, actually in our language, in our alphabet, it would be Y-H-W-H. And that's where we get either the word Yahweh or Jehovah. Now, I think that's a mispronunciation because do you pronounce it Joshua or Yeshua? It's Yeshua. But how is it spelled? It's spelled with a J. So when you say Jehovah, it would more likely be pronounced Yehovah is the way it would be pronounced. Now, some uh, Hebrew scholars might say, no, that's completely wrong. Well, it may be completely wrong. But if you go over to uh, Israel, especially uh, Joshua, which is Jesus' name, 
In Hebrew, in the Greek, it's Jesus. So Jesus is either in the Greek, Jesus, or in the uh, Hebrew, it's Yeshua. And if you say Yeshua HaMashiach, that is Jesus, the Messiah. In the Greek, you say Jesus, the Christ. But the word for God here is the Tetragrammaton, which is more commonly pronounced Yahweh, but the Jehovah Witnesses have commandeered this term. They are witnesses for Jehovah. And this is the Tetragrammaton again, and it is a word that the Jews decided that was attributed to God not to be spoken. And so when you look at the um, Hebrew scriptures in English, they will write it out capital G hyphen or dash D is how they'll write it. They will not include the O in there. They'll just draw a line through it. So he is the one who shall not be named. He is the God who reigns on high. And so they cannot say his name. Do we say his name? We say his name all the time. Why? We're family, right? Now the Israelites were family too, but they were under another covenant than we are. And if they want to maintain that, that's perfectly fine. Then it goes on to describe the nine characteristics of God. As he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, the gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. What a great God. All these characteristics of God that are here. For instance, on the first one, this idea that he is compassionate and gracious this compassionate and gracious might be better translated merciful and gracious. Now, mercy is not being judged or repaid according to what you have done. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. Mercy is getting something or not getting something that you do deserve. And justice is getting that which you purposely and actually do deserve. Somebody needs to repay you for that. And that's our God. He is a God of justice. And so God gives us his mercy. He is gracious to us. He causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. He is gracious even to those who don't trust in him. And grace is such a great thing. It's representative in the Old Testament of salt when you would go to the altar to present your sacrifice, the priests were to take salt. There would be these tubs of salt and they would just grab handfuls and they'd throw the salt on there liberally without measure. They'd keep on doing that. That signifies the grace of God. That's why in the uh, communion we're going to receive today, if the matzah has salt on it, I like to be reminded of that when I put that in my mouth. I remember the grace of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his son. Now with this... I'm going to run out of time going through these nine characteristics and I wanted to touch on the idea of communion. And so I'm going to go back to that next week. But when it comes to communion, you know, what are we doing exactly when we take this bread and we take this cup? For us, communion is an ordinance. An ordinance is different than a sacrament. A sacrament is believed to bring the grace of God. There are seven, seven sacraments in the Catholic Church. They are baptism, confirmation, holy communion, confession, marriage, holy orders, and anointing of the sick. Now, this is where a priest will either perform a service or he will carry out a baptism, whatever he does. And with that act, it is believed it brings the grace of God. Now we sing a song and the song says his grace is perfectly free 
that there's no cost to it. That there's nothing we can do to get more grace from God and nothing that we can do to make our lives meritorious where God has to say, ah, I need to give you more grace. In that song, it says, day by day, your grace is perfectly free, completely forgiven. It is all by your grace. Now you might say, well, yeah, but that's a song. That's not scripture, right? Well, what does scripture have to say? couple of places titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 7 but when the kindness of the love of god our savior towards man appeared not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the holy spirit now if god saves us he has to come to us with his favor right and that grace and that faith has to be sufficient to bring us into the kingdom. He provides for us the faith, and it is by God's grace that it is delivered to us. And so it says, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace. In other words, we were unjustified. Justified means to be declared right. When God looks at us, he goes, Oh, you are wrong. Let me declare you right. And you have to say, I wish to be declared right. And he goes, granted, you are declared right. Why does he declare us right? Because he wants fellowship with us. How does he do it? It is by his grace. Do you have to get more grace later on once you get saved to be justified? No. You don't have to get any more grace. Now, this is, would, would differentiate us between the Catholic Church and Calvary Chapel. We b- believe that God's grace is sufficient, right? Now, the Apostle Paul, as I mentioned earlier, he had this infirmity. He asked it to be taken away. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient. In other words, in Paul's weakness, it was better for him to be weak and do no acts that might gain God's favor. Do you think Paul said, What do you want me to do, Lord? You just have me do something and I'll do it and I'll get your grace then, right? I'm going to bargain with God. God says, nope, sorry. You got all the grace you need. You cannot do anything to get merit from me. And so this grace is all in a package that comes from God. We can't say, hey, batter, 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 and you put your glove up there say throw me some grace it doesn't work like that god just gives it to us freely it was the job of the priest to grab it and throw it on there who is our priest jesus christ what does he do with grace he grabs it and throws it on the sacrifice it's his sacrifice on the cross was all the grace you and i need and so that's what happens when we receive communion It is an ordinance, not a sacrament. As a church, we don't have sacraments. Calvary Chapel, as a Calvary Chapel, we don't. There's nothing you can do to bring the grace of God in. We're saved completely by his act, not by what we do. We don't get more grace by what we do. And so this is definitely a distinction that is there. The other ordinance, and this is just something we practice, is baptism. As a believer, you get baptized and you receive communion. Those two things identify you 
as a Christian. If you're not baptized and you don't receive communion, does it mean you're not saved? No, it doesn't. There is no work any one of us can do to get saved. But does it mean you're disobedient? Yes, it does. If you really want to follow God, if you say, God, you know, I really want to follow you, you receive communion and you get baptized. That's just the first, those are like the baby steps. I saw a little video of his, the guy said, my little boy is walking and he got his little boy up there and he's, you know, he's doing this thing and he let him go and he almost fell to the ground and the gra- dad grabbed him, picked him back up and put him back down and then he walked to the crib. You know, he went like three feet to the crib and he grabbed hold of the crib and he looked around, you know, like this. And, and it was all good. It's, it's all God's grace. He's reaching in. He's the one that helps us. He's the one that gets us here. It's the idea that God loves us so much. He just heaps the grace upon us. And this idea that we need to be obedient, that's all he asks. And that's where the little kid, the little boy, okay, now you walk, right? God says, now you get baptized. God says, you receive communion. You can do this. And when you get baptized, it's going to be cold. Yeah, it's going to be cold. You go in the water, you get baptized. This is simply what we do as believers. And so these are two ordinances. Now with this, and I'll explain this here, when it it comes to receiving the communion, we remember God's strength in the defeat of our enemy, Satan, and death. We remember our powerlessness to affect our destiny because it speaks about God's grace that we were completely lost and we remember the goodness of God towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what we do when we receive communion. Jesus Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. Scripture is very clear in what it says and very clear in what it doesn't say. And that's why we divide the scriptures. We pick them apart. Jesus said, do this. Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. He didn't say, whenever you do this, do this to get some more grace from me. He didn't say that. And it's important what he doesn't say as well as what he says. So we're going to be receiving communion. The worship team is going to come up. We're going to play a song as it's being passed out. And when it's being passed out, if you're not a believer, if if you don't think you're a believer... Scripture says, and you've heard it many times from me, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you have to do it sincerely. You just have to say, Jesus, I believe that you are Lord and you are Savior. I confess my sins to you. I believe it in my heart and I confess it with my mouth. If you do that, if you just turn to the Lord and you do that, he saves you. And then you want to receive communion. If you receive communion and you're not saved, (laughs) okay, so you're recognizing the body and blood of Christ, but you're drinking it in an unworthy manner. You haven't asked him to save you. It's, It's not like brownie points. He doesn't turn to us and say, oh, you received communion. I have to let you into heaven. No, he doesn't do that. We want to make sure we're doing it the way God prescribes, that we believe the way God tells us to believe, that we don't follow the teachings of any man or any woman. And so at this time, if the worship team will come up, and if you guys want to come up and go ahead and get this, the elements of the bread and the juice, and we'll pass those out, and please hold on to them until we can all participate in receiving them together.